You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. An idea is off in the universe somewhere, and so I never notice a landmark. I don't know what you're wearing today, let alone what you wore last week. I don't know what I was wearing. I just, I have no... Are you getting? I, I don't receive any data about the world around me, and it's a problem because people whose minds are constantly worrying or who are absent-minded um, miss things. Uh, they actually miss the enjoyment of things, the uh, you know the, the things that we appreciate through observation, through being present. So I'm actually working with a, a psychologist at the moment now in just sort of re-engaging observation of the world around me. This, though, this lack of a sense of direction, this failure to acknowledge physical landmarks around me is a problem because one of the, one of the things I love doing most of all in the world is hiking. I love hiking, and the more remote destination, the better. And so my experience of hiking has largely been disorientation, Right? Getting lost is another way of saying it. To, to the extent that at least twice Renee has been on the phone to emergency services just, you know, in case we need to get uh, a chopper out into the wilderness somewhere where I've lost myself. And my experience of hiking can be mapped out, a kind of plot line of uh, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. That's like the plot, that's the plot of every one of my hikes. It's orientation, like looking at a map, and even then, I'm in trouble. I'm the, I'm the guy who looks at the map and then like turns it around the other way and then does this face a lot. Like, not, not much comprehension. But orientation, as best as I can, okay, I think this is roughly where I'm going. And then the experience of hiking is largely disorientation as I lose my way, lose the trail, you know, lose where I am in the universe itself. And then, God willing and by God's grace, reorientation. After moments of panic, finding that trail that I'm meant to be on or one of those little red reflector arrow things that they put out occasionally to help you out or at least help people like me out. And this kind of pattern, this plot of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation, it's actually um, the way that uh, an Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, describes the book of Psalms. He says that where we can categorize Psalms by genre or by uh, time or location, you can actually, and he likes to categorize them in terms of these three things, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. That is, some Psalms are about orientation. This is who God is, and this is who we are in light of who God is. It's very orientating. Then there are Psalms of disorientation, where the, the person, the psalmist, is, is expressing thoughts of, of, of disorientation, of being lost, we thought this is what you were like, but this is our experience. Or I thought that this is what, who, who I was to you, God, but now this is what's happening. Disorientation. It's, it's seeing through the fog of suffering in the darkness. And then Psalms of reorientation where we, we move from that experience of being in the pit, of being in the fog, of being in the darkness, out back into the light where we can see, ah, we remember now, this is who God is, this is who we are. It's a helpful way of, of trying to figure out this psalm that I'm reading now, which, which, where does it fit in, in that kind of sweep? 
This psalm that we're looking at today is a psalm of orientation. It's a psalm that clearly maps out for us who God is and who we are in light of who God is. I really like what a a friend of mine, Alex, early, this is what he said about Psalm 8. He says, here we see David totally orientated toward God. He's thinking clearly and is full of worship and wonder at God in light of his creation. He not only knows who the maker is, he knows the maker himself. And his maker knows him too. He is at peace in this beautiful world, knowing that he's not just part of creation in general, but that he uniquely belongs to God. He's humbled in light of this reality and worship pours from his mouth. This is what happens when we orientate ourselves towards God. Worship pours from us. That's why, along with Psalms, we, in the Anglican Church, we have this liturgy that sort of moves us through the service, beginning with, like the Psalm of Thanksgiving that we read at the beginning together, it's, meant, it's designed to orientate us. We come in just scattered, like sheep that have been scattered back into the fold, and our liturgy, our Psalms, orientate us. Remember, this is who God is. This is who we are. The songs that we sing serve the same purpose. And the product of all of this is worship. So take a look at it with me. The first verse of Psalm 8. He says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. This is... This is how you know that he's on the right track. He begins with God. He begins with who God is. We always know that we've deviated from our course or that we've fallen into disorientation when we begin with ourselves. When our faith is man-centered or me-centered, we know we're off track. It's so easy to get lost and disorientated when all we have is our subjective experience to go by. Orientation happens when we remember who God is and then who I am in light of who he is. So that's where he begins. And then he moves on to how God works out his will in the world. And it's a bit counterintuitive, but he he tells us, verse 2, from the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. Literally, when he talks about the, the stronghold there that he establishes through the mouths of infants and nursing babies, that stronghold literally is pray, the word praise. So the way that God... It's great to hear the voices of babies and nursing infants in our church, friends. I'll tell you why. Because that's how God works out his will in the world. And that's how he establishes his force in the world against darkness. He does it through nursing infants and babies. He does it through their mouths. He does it through praise. Isn't that wild? If you were to ask me, how does God establish his rule on the earth? Most of us, our minds would go straight to, well, well, you know, strength, power, dominion. 
And that's how our, our human minds work. That's why we're so given to power and politics. This is how you get stuff done. But God says, no, I establish my strongholds on the earth through babies, through praise. Let me just give you a little plug for our uh, whole church prayer meeting on Saturday the 6th of March. The first segment of that prayer meeting is um, particularly for designed for children and childlike adults to give praise to God, to establish his stronghold on the earth. So if you've got kids, we want you to come the whole way through, but that first hour or so of the day will be particularly important because we want to hear the praise of infants and babies and children and the rest of us who come in childlike humility before God. That's how he establishes things on the earth. We're tempted, and I'm tempted myself, to think, when I'm thinking about how does God establish his kingdom on the earth, I think, well, maybe maybe if the president of the United States was a born-again believer, the most powerful man on the earth, imagine if he was born again. Or or you 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 might go to celebrities. I don't know who's famous these days. I'm going to be 40 next month, so I've got no idea. But just whoever's famous today, you think, what if they became a Christian? That would, you know, that would be so powerful. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Praise God, more politicians and celebrities become Christians. That's not how God gets stuff done on the earth. He does it through weakness. He establishes his strength through the, the weakness and the, the, the praise and thanksgiving of weak people. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is what he says in verse 26 to 27. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So the psalmist has here in mind, and it goes throughout the whole psalm, he has in mind Genesis 1 to 3. And he remembers not only that God has created the universe and created us as the pinnacle of that creation, but he remembers that there is an avenger, there is an enemy. That the Satan, the accuser, is at large in the world and he says the way that God establishes a stronghold against those adversaries, the way that he silences the enemy, the avenger, the accuser, the father of lies, the way he does that is through the praise of his childlike people. Think about that next time I ask you to stand and sing. Or the next time your little kid says the most basic acknowledgement of who God is that shuts the devil's mouth that's amazing now he moves on he grounds his orientation right this whole thing's about orientating ourselves in light of who God is he grounds it grounds his orientation in observation Right, so verse 3, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place. Stop there. When I observe. This is a powerful, 
force for orientation. That is observation. This is the thing that I struggle so much with. I'm only just now discovering this sort of distinction between the thinking mind and the observing mind. Some of you have known this since primary school, sorry. I, I, never, got, no, I never got this. But the fact that we ought to, and, and it would benefit us greatly, to just sometimes shut our mind up. Stop critically thinking or even creatively thinking about all that other stuff that's going on and just observe. Observe who God is in the world he has made. The heavens declare the glory of God. Right? God's creation is speaking. The question is, are we listening? When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers. When's the last time you did this? Like, when's the last time you carved out some time to just observe God in the world he has made? And I don't just mean setting aside time, because you can spend all of that time sitting on a mountain and running every worry, anxiety that's plaguing you constantly through your head, and you've done nothing for your soul. But to actually sit, shut up, and see, observe the glory of God and the things that He's made. I tell you what, if you want verse 1 and verse 9 of this psalm, if you want to be able to say verse 1 and verse 9, let me remind you. Lord our God, how magnificent is your name throughout all the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. Verse 9, Lord our God, how magnificent is your name throughout all the earth! Exclamation mark. If you want to be able to say that, you won't get there unless you get to verse 3 first. I really believe that. There's just too much noise drowning out the magnificence of God. There's too much stuff to do. There's too many worries, too many burdens, too much sin to disorientate us. But if you can take the time to observe the heavens, the work of God's fingers, then you can get to verse 1 and 9. So let's continue. I'll keep going from verse 3. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him? It's a natural place to come to if you've ever observed God in his creation, if you have any idea how big the universe or universes are, if you've ever looked at the galaxy, you can't help but feel puny by comparison, insignificant. Not only are you a speck, but the whole world that you live in is a speck. The, the, the universe itself is a speck in comparison to the vastness 
of God's creation. Well beyond anything we could ever observe for ourselves. So the natural place to go to is where he goes to. Like, who am I? What is man? What is a human being? A son of man that you look after him? How is it that God cares about me at all? What he's doing here is sort of painting for us, describing for us the mystery of the transcendence of God and the imminence of God. We're a big word church, all right? So you need to keep these things in mind. Categories for who God is. Transcendence. He is way beyond us. Incalculably huge beyond the scope of our imagination or our observation. We'll never fit into our heads all that he is. He is transcendent, other, holy, removed, far above us. And he is imminent. That is, he is here. He is with us. Wasn't an accident that one of the names of Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. The transcendent God humbles himself, incarnates, becomes flesh, and lives among us. The transcendent God, by his spirit, dwells within. The believer. God is both transcendent and imminent. He created the galaxies and he loves an insignificant sinner like me. The hairs of your head are numbered. Aren't you more valuable than many sparrows? Some of you might be tempted to think that that is kind of fairly elementary theology. That's the kind of thing that we teach in our creche. God is big and God also loves me. Let me tell you, that is the deep end of the theological pool. You're not going to get much further than that. And you can spend the rest of your life understanding it and glorying in it. I'm reminded of a line from Prince Caspian, the Chronicle of Narnia. And uh, it's where Prince Caspian, who has just inherited the throne of Narnia, learns from Aslan the lion, the, the Jesus figure in the, in the book, learns from him that his lineage is not actually royal. He, his lineage, his, his, his um, bloodline is actually, they're pirates from our own world, from, from Earth, 
pirates and vagabonds and thieves. And he says to Aslan, I was, I, you know, he's disappointed to hear this. And he says, I was hoping that I would have come from a nobler line than that. And Aslan responds, and this is not verbatim because I haven't memorized it, but he says something like, you are a son of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, and that is glory enough to erect the head of the lowest beggar and shame enough to bow the head of the most majestic ruler, something like that. And that's true. That's what the transcendence and imminence of God reminds us. We're not God. We're nowhere near him. He's way too big for us, way far above us, and he loves us. He sent his son to die for us. He's with us. Sometimes these things that we talk about, these theological concepts are a little bit abstract. And so I was thinking, when have I experienced this? You know, aside from just now when I was talking about it. Um, and it's a, I tell you what, just like every little illustration analogy, it's bad. All right. It's like Jesus' parables. Don't try and read everything into every little detail. There's a big idea that, that he wants you to get and that I want you to get from this. But my mind went back a few years ago. I went to this meeting of church planters and there was a guy at the meeting who I just adored. He's a... I know this isn't very relatable unless you're a nerd like me, but he's a... He's a a preacher in America and, you know, very well known. And I had watched hours and hours and hours of footage of him preaching. I'd just been so blessed by him and encouraged by him. And then I'd walk into this meeting and he's right there. And I, I was there with Renee and Judah was maybe two, not about 18 months. And we, we came to this thing and suddenly he was there. And, and as soon as I got there, someone grabbed me and came and, and, and introduced me to him and you know they say you shouldn't meet your heroes I'll only disappoint you that's not what happened I just, he just turned around he's like hey man how's it going and I was just like, like for the first time in my life this has not happened with any sports person or celebrity I was just starstruck I was, I was like oh it's that guy and then the rest of the night you know what happened there was maybe a hundred people there to meet him and people who had contributed financially for him to come over from the US and he was there that night to speak in front of thousands of people. The rest of the night he spent most of the time just chatting with my wife and holding my boy. He was just cuddling Judah. Judah had this big mop of blonde curly hair. He was just stroking his hair and telling us how much he missed his kids back home in the US. And it was just... It was just confusing. It was mysterious. This man who in my mind and the minds of so many there that night was just transcendent, famous and powerful, and yet he was there snuggling my boy. It's a little bit of what I'm talking about. Father God designed the universe with his fingers 
he placed the sun and moon and stars. And that same God snuggles us. He snuggles us. We've got to keep going. Sorry, verse 3 to 5. I'm just going to keep going back to verse 3 and we'll read through to 5. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him? You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honour. Your translation of the Bible might have... uh, Instead of you made him a little less than God, it might say you made him a little less than the angels or the heavenly beings. So this is a, a, just a, a point of translation that translators kind of go either way on, but the, the original Hebrew word is the plural of Elohim. So it's God in plural, gods. And so the translators have to work out what does he mean when he says gods. It could be that he's referring to God in the plural, which is what you do when you want to stress the magnificence of someone. If you're a good monarchist like me, you'll know that the queen is referred to in the plural. When she's making a pronouncement, she says, we say this or that. The plural emphasizes, some of you are struggling with me saying I'm a monarchist. Just get past that bit, okay? And just, this is the point. Plural, it's the royal we, okay? So, it could be God's plural magnificence of God, or it could be God's plural like heavenly beings, angels. That's the way Hebrews 2.7 translates it when it quotes this psalm. It uses heavenly beings or angels. Here's the point. Don't get hung up on whether it's God or angels. That's not the point. The emphasis is not on whether those things are above us, but how far above everything else we are. Okay, That's the point he's trying to make. His emphasis is on the fact that just inexplicably God chose human beings to be the pinnacle of his creation, far above everything else he created, sun, moon, stars, animals, rocks, everything. You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honour. This is obviously a reference to Genesis 1 and 2. As I said, Genesis 1, 2 and 3 runs through this psalm. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that God made us in his image, in the image of God. He made us male and female. He made us, right? The pinnacle of his creation. He looks at the rest of creation and says it's good. He looks at human beings and says that's very good, right? God made us uniquely in his image. There's nothing else that you see in the world that reflects God's image in the way that we do. Uniquely made in the imago dei, the image of God. Now this truth has ramifications for just about everything you do every day of the week. Most of us are blind to this fact. Christians and non-Christians, blind to the fact that so much of our Western culture, our civilization, is built on this truth. Humans are made in the image of God. This is the ground and the only ground that exists in the universe for a universal bill of human rights. The only reason that you can look at a person and say, they are 
valuable is because of this truth. We walk around on a foundation that we're very often completely naive to. That foundation is this truth. Humans are made in the image of God and therefore they have dignity and value and worth. This goes for the most powerful ruler and the smallest, most disabled child. And I would argue, even if that child is not yet born. Made in the image of God and therefore of incalculable value. Now, if you're here this morning and you're an atheist or not, or not yet a believer, first of all, it's so good to have you here. Just love the fact that we have people in our church who aren't Christians. Just love that so much. The day that stops, I will think that we've done something terribly, terribly wrong. But let me just tell you, as a friend, if you are an, an atheist and therefore a materialist, that is, nothing exists outside of the material world, then you have no ground for human rights. There is no objective ground for them. You can say that humans are valuable, but there's no reason for that. There's no reason that a human being would be more valuable than a dog or an amoeba. There's nothing. Like, just give you the challenge. Come up with one reason why my seven-year-old is more Valuable than the lizard he caught on the weekend. He isn't. I really enjoyed a couple of years ago reading the book Sapiens. Um, it's a book by Yuval Noah Harari. He's a Israeli intellectual, and he wrote this history of humankind. And the reason I loved it, even though it was alarming and disturbing. The reason I loved it is because he is an utterly consistent atheist. He doesn't fudge anything. He says there are no gods and therefore, he says, there are no gods in the universe, no nations, no money, no human rights, no laws, no justice outside the common imagination of human beings. And that is absolutely true and consistent with his worldview. He is an atheist, materialist, nothing exists outside of what is here, what we can taste, hear, see, smell, touch. Therefore, there's no gods, obviously. There's also no nations. That was just someone drawing lines on a map. There's no money. That's just something we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves, I've got $10 in my pocket. It's not. It's a piece of plastic it's useful to, for us to convince ourselves that it has value but it doesn't and just as money doesn't have any value nor do human beings there are no rights no laws laws are just something we made up you know you, should, you can't cross the road unless it's a green light well, that doesn't exist in the universe that's just something we tell ourselves so that people don't get run over right utterly consistent Human rights is a useful fiction. It's a myth. 
We tell ourselves that human beings are worth protecting and that killing people is wrong. That's not actually true, but it's useful. That's what the atheist materialist believes. And if you're an atheist this morning and you don't believe that, I challenge you, be consistent. I don't mind if you believe in God or not, but at least be consistent in your belief. The Christian reads his Bible, reads her book of Psalms, appreciates the consistency of the statement and says, no. Human beings really are valuable and really are worth protecting. Murder really is wrong and people's rights really do need to be defended. Justice is something worth pursuing. Why? Because we are made in God's image. We have been crowned with glory and honour. Oh man, there's so much more to say on this. We've got to keep... This is why it's good to preach from the Bible and not from your own hobby horses, all right? This brings you back to the, what's important, brings you back to what God is saying to us, all right? So he moves, he moves beyond that to explain what it is, the responsibility that we have as God's people, which is congruent with the place of honour that he's given us. So with great power comes great responsibility. You don't get glory and honour without responsibility. And so he goes on to describe that. In verse 6 to 8, he says, You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. So again, very clear Genesis 1 and 2 imagery here. The order of creation, hierarchy of creation. This speaks to the responsibility that God has given us to be stewards of his creation. For a few thousand years, human beings have misread ruler, that word ruler. You have made him ruler and interpreted it to be some kind of tyrant. Ruler means steward, right? It means you've been given something by God on loan to take care of. I remember in VCE, I did biology. I had designs on being a zoologist until I found out that I was no good at biology. But I remember in that class, my teacher, who was very anti-theist, the the head of the biology department at my Baptist grammar school, was very... (laughs) very anti-theist. And he said, I just always remember this pronouncement, he said, the greatest cause of destruction and devastation on the earth is the Christian worldview. And he cited this. Christians believe they rule over the, the world. And so they just devastated. Christians believe that God's just going to burn the world up and give them a new one at the end. So they just... Treat it like rubbish. Now, he might be right. I'd probably throw a few other factors in there, aside from just Christians 
messing the place up, but he might be right. He might have a point. But if he does, then that is such a tragic misinterpretation of the scriptures. That is an absolute dereliction of our duty as stewards of his creation. To think to ourselves, well, yeah, God's just going to burn the world up and give us a new one in the end. We, you know, and so we can treat it however we like. You know, it's just going to be trashed anyway. We don't think about that in terms of our own bodies. Well, you're just going to die in the end and God's going to give us a new one. So, uh, I mean, some of us live like that, but we don't think it's a good thing. We need to be reminded of the fact that the creation and our bodies will live for eternity. They're going to be restored, recreated, renewed. And we need to remember that God has given us a precious work of his fingers to steward well. Christians ought to be the most passionate, most motivated conservationists on the planet. And if your Christian theology makes you someone who is sceptical about all of that stuff, and you know, we don't want to give the world to the greenies, you need to just reorientate this morning. I love the fact that my boy Judah is a conservationist. He just loves nature. He's not politically motivated. He just thinks what God has created is awesome, and he wants to keep it that way. You got a problem with that? In that sense, every one of us ought to be a conservationist. What God has made is awesome. It's majestic. Let's keep it that way. I love what he's done. He's put together, my my boy Judah has a box, and on the top of it he's written um, money for the endangered animals. And he just, if you come around to our place, he will be on you in a minute shaking his box a couple of days ago we, he and I washed both of our cars and uh, my car takes about 15 minutes Renee's takes the best part of a day and um, he was just working so hard and working so hard Renee gave him 10 bucks for that job I was on about 50 cents but he, um, he went to her like he should um, to get his money and she gave him 10 bucks you know, he went straight to his box and just put it straight in there I was like, buddy, you don't have to give it all to the endangered animals. Like, let's go and buy some lollies. He's like, no. I love that. Conservation motivated by a sense of gratitude and awe and wonder at what God has made. He has made us stewards over everything in creation. There's about 20 points through this psalm where, as I was studying through it, I just had to stop and reorientate. I encourage you, as I have been throughout this series, take one psalm each day. They'll last you half the year. Take one psalm each day and use it to orientate yourself. It might even be a psalm of disorientation where the whole thing is bleak 
And God can use that to reorientate you to him. Friends, please take some time, even today. Let's just make a deal. Let's just make a deal that for 15 minutes today, you spend some time orientating yourself. Orientating yourself, remembering who God is. He's magnificent. He's majestic. And remembering who you are in light of who he is, that you are crowned with glory and honour. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in your word and that you've also held up a mirror to us to see who we are. I praise you and thank you this morning that I can look at each one of these men and women and children and know without question that they are valuable to you, precious to you, overflowing with dignity and value and worth because they're made in your image. And so we don't need to strive this morning to make ourselves matter to you. We don't have to work for your affection and for your care. But that you look at each one of us with an overwhelming sense of love, affection, compassion, mercy, and care. I pray that like David, this acknowledgement and this orientation would give voice to praise and worship. Even now as we stand together and sing, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.